Capitalism Project. Welcome to Season 4 of New Dawn, a podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Sylvie Laurent is a cultural historian who teaches American studies at Sciences Po. Her research interests include African American history and culture, class, and the study of whiteness. She has several books. Her most recent book is King and the Other America, The Poor People's Campaign and the Quest for Economic Equality, which was published earlier this year. It's my pleasure to welcome her on the show today. Well, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have a friend and colleague, Sylvie Laurent, on. And we're going to start with the book I just mentioned, and it's very justifiably getting a lot of notice. It's giving us a light into the civil rights movement and Dr. King's work that will help transform our understanding of Black politics, radical politics, and King's vision quite a bit. But toward the beginning, you say that the ratio of, this is a quote, of the activist encampment is a dramatic metaphor what is left in our collective memory of the concern for economic justice as a civil right during the Black liberation movement. The surge in democracy and King had fought for in his poor people's campaign's dramatization of the dispossessed were lost in the smoke of the burning cities of the late 1960s. What did you mean by that? And what did you mean when you said that the voice of the poor and the voice of the unheard was silenced? Well, I mean two things. The first one is that the Poor People's Campaign has largely been overlooked by most historians. And so people don't actually know about these class and rice-based insurgency that took place in 1968. That's the first first element of that quote. And the second one is that the urban uprising of the late 60s have also been dismissed as the criminal the criminalization of the poor and the transition from the notion of an uprising to the very normative idea of riots basically shed a very dark light on the economic based claims of those who revolted in the late 60s. So these two elements, the criminalization of the urban uprising and the dismissal of the Poor People's Campaign, both talk to this obliviousness that marks the Poor People's Campaign. I would agree. And I would say that with respect to the second, the criminalization of the uprisings, we're seeing exactly the same pattern unfold in the United States over the last five years with the uprisings in Ferguson and Baltimore being considered, quote unquote, riots instead of revolts against structures of oppression and inequality and ongoing inequality, as we know from, for example, the Department of Justice's report on Ferguson and the work of many scholars. The other thing I would probably add to to your account is that it also puts a different light on organizations as, such as the Black Panther Party and some of the other radical organizations of the late 1960s, because they're seen as, and sometimes portrayed as being a radical break with the civil rights movement. But I think your portrayal shows that although the tactics were different, the concern with race and economic inequality were very much linked together in both the Black Power Movement, at least parts of the Black Power Movement and parts of the Civil Rights Movement. Absolutely. And very little do people know that at the end of his life, Dr. King was probably more, he was closer to someone like Fred Hampton in Chicago, who 
famously said, you don't fight capitalism with black capitalism, you fight capitalism with socialism. So King was closer to that kind of thought than to Jesse Jackson, who in the late 60s was embracing capitalism as an avenue for black emancipation. So yeah, to to many regards, the Black Panther Party and the Black radical tradition of the 60s and the 70s picked up the torch of the Poor People's Campaign much more than mainline civil rights leaders who remain the most notorious figures of this uh, new mainstream civil rights movement. Yes, and you talk about, for example, how a wide range of civil rights leaders such as Bernard Rustin and James Farmer were extremely skeptical about the Poor People's Campaign. And I also know that those such as Andy Young and Ralph Abernathy, if King had not been assassinated, there would have been a fierce debate within the civil rights movement about how to treat particularly questions of economic inequality I and mean, what type of mobilizations were needed to actually bring forward those who had been left behind, which is one of the major themes in your book. But, I mean, as you say, you know, much of this history has been erased and many people today are unfamiliar with the Poor People campaign, as well as with some of the more radical aspects of Dr. King's thought. Could you describe the campaign? What did King have in mind when he launched it? By 1966, King became more and more convinced that he couldn't catch the civil rights movement in terms of only integration or civil-based achievements, that he had to frame his fight for equality through basically by addressing economic inequities. He has long been influenced by socialist ideas. I was very struck while researching for my book how many socialists gravitated around Dr. King since his infancy, more or less. His professors at Morehouse College, the whole atmosphere in Atlanta, in the 30s, which was infused with radical communist-based insurrections. And then obviously the people he read, the people he studied, the people he came across. And so he had these kind of social democratic sensitivity. But after 66, he really wanted to identify a new strategy to achieving substantial uh, equality. And so he launched the idea of a poor people's campaign, which would be a national gathering of the poor, uh, of any stripes and colors and ethnicity from the poor whites to uh, Latinos, Chicanos, African-Americans, obviously Native Americans, so women, men, and everyone was welcome to the table. And he announced the campaign uh, in December 1967. And the campaign would be launched eventually uh, in the spring of 2008, but Dr. King didn't live long enough to see the campaign taking place, actually. And so when you talked about the fact that most of his friends and colleagues were dismissive of the Poor People's Campaign, it's absolutely correct, but it's also very interesting because actually King was alone by thinking that you should address economic inequalities, but in ways that you would never tone down your racial claims and your racial grievances. So there's another assumption about the second phase of the civil rights movement, which is more or less that the movement switched to class 
you could hear that, that somehow King has become a socialist and that he let behind the race-based demands that had been at the center of his struggle for decades. And it's also a misconception. What is so striking with the Poor People's Campaign is the degree to which King straddled the, the class and race frameworks, never considering that race was a subsidiary question to class. He has never been a reductionist. He wanted to have it all. He wanted to address wealth inequality. He wanted to tackle capitalism. But he never bought in the idea that once you overthrow capitalism, racism just vanishes. He would never buy in such a reductionist uh, class-based approach. So it wasn't a, a switch to class. It was rather an expansion of the scope of equality, an expansion of the scope of the civil rights movement to include wealth inequality because as he was witnessing the uprising of the northern urban poor, he realized that the spectacle of misery in the midst of plenty, as he, call, as he called it, were another form of poverty that is bad enough to be poor, but you're always poor relative to someone else. And the spectacles of someone having so much when most of the urban poors, most young African-Americans in northern ghettos, but also poor Appalachians, Latinos in the barrios, and Native Americans in the reservation were having nothing. That was a form of unsustainable violence. So you really wanted to tangle the intellect oppression of capitalism and racism. So it, it has never been for him an either-or kind of framework. Which, we'll get to this a bit later, but in a, in a way, he's very prescient in foreshadowing concerns about racial capitalism where people are trying to, both activists and scholars are trying to avoid a reductionist approach that either reduces, in this case, black oppression to either just race or class. You also write that he held the federal government to be directly responsible for the what he called the deplorable conditions of poor people in the United States. Why did he hold the state so centrally responsible? Well, I guess probably because he had read Karl Marx and because he visited Sweden and he was very cognizant of the underpinning of the liberal uh, democratic states he was living in. So he would know that despite all the a tide rise all boats kind of rhetoric, the state had to be accountable. And that's the, the fascinating thing. When you've been a civil rights leader for so long, you know that the state is both the poison and the remedy, right? So it's, it's, it's the people who oppress, the, the state is the entity which oppresses you. But at the same time, it's the only legitimate power that can emancipate you. So you have to hold them accountable. And so since he knew exactly how a liberal democracy was working, he knew that the economic power of the state was gigantic. And that because he remembers the New Deal era and the federal, the role played by federal policies, he would call it would call out the state for the lack of public investment in housing, education, job creation. And what's what's particularly striking is that he never bought in 
the very we will call that neoliberal, although it's it it was not the term was not in usage back then. But it would never buy in the free market based ideology, which claims that the state is not accountable for social or economic equality. It would always, on the contrary, claim that the state had a role to play to mitigate racial as well as economic inequalities. And you could see with Johnson's war on poverty, both the hopes that were raised by by such a, a plan to tackle poverty heads on, and also the disappointment when when there's a form of withdrawal, a rolling back of of all the promises that were made to have a very proactive policy towards uh, eradicating poverty, you will definitely think that in the U.S. As in any decent social democracy, the state had a role to play to mitigate the injuries inflicted of, uh, on the vulnerable by free markets and by the unequal distribution of resources. One of the things that I think is critical about this period of history is the role that foreign travel played for people like Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X where they saw alternative ways of viewing the world, alternative ways of seeing who their friends and enemies were. And I think in King's case, for example, the Sweden visit showed a capitalist economy, but I remember being shocked in graduate school when I was working as a research assistant where I was calculating the wealth ratios for my professor in countries like Sweden, Japan, the United States, United Kingdom, France, and other. And the in the some of the Northern European countries, the ratio of, let's say, the, the lowest paid worker in a firm and to the CEO was like four to one, where in the United States was way off the scale, like 13 and 14 to one. So he knew that the state could play such a role in alleviating, you know, the, at least some of the worst aspects of inequality during that time. The other thing I think that your book highlights is, you know, his isolation with other civil rights leaders. But one of the reasons that he becomes isolated, of course, is his opposition to the Vietnam War. But you just talked about Johnson's withdrawal from the war on poverty. And I think leaders such in the black radical tradition and King himself saw a direct relationship between support for the Vietnam War and decreasing support for social welfare programs in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. The anti-imperialist uh, critique has been present for a very long time, although it took, it took King some time. He expressed his first critique in, in this private sphere as far as the Vietnam War in 65, but it would it would wait up until 67 to voice it publicly, notoriously in, in New York. And but the reason being that he, he, he wanted to cut Johnson some slack. But what's interesting to me is that although it has been very well documented that his critique of the Vietnam War alienated him, many of his friends. There's another reason that explains why he was growing more and more lonely, which was his refusal to dismiss the growing Black Power movement. And and I think this is one of the most surprising things that bubbles up when, when one pays attention to the Poor People's Campaign. He actually launched a public invitation not only to Stokely Carmichael, but to many young gang members whom he met when he was in Chicago, what you would call a lumpen proletariat, and he invited them 
to join the Poor People's Campaign, and quite surprisingly, they accepted. And they would come and participate as marshals and security staff, if you want, in the Poor People's Campaign. Although they were they were much more Mackin than King, you know, they were they were these young uh, radicals who uh, were not at all convinced that King's strategy was the way to go. But King also launches invitation to the very radical nationalist Chicano movement. People were seen also as radical, and although there were social democrats, people like A. Philip Randolph or Bayard Rustin were not happy at all with these invitations because they thought that these radical race-based uh, movement were detrimental to the cause. And so what's so striking is that for some, King was way too radical, and for others, he was becoming this mainstream, out-fashioned leader who has lost you know, his political capital. But up until the end, he would strive to straddle the class and base frameworks and always refuse to repudiate the young radicals and, and the, uh, the nascent Black Panther Party kind of philosophy. One of the interesting parts is that certainly he was considered old-fashioned by many of the younger black radicals of the time, but they were far, even Malcolm X and the young, rising young black radicals after Malcolm X were far more willing to, to work with King than his colleagues of years. And it seems to me that one of the things that King did is the type of work that Fred Hampton did in Chicago, where Hampton reached out to the gangs quite successfully. Um, the very large gangs on the south and west sides of Chicago reached out to young Appalachian communities of young white people and organizations like Rising Up Angry and was, a, was able to bring together a multiracial coalition. Why was King so insistent on the poor people's campaign being multiracial? Well, here again, the first way to hash out class-based coalition was to go back to Du Bois, or even as I say in my book, to Frederick Douglass, who really wanted to overcome racial prejudice, knowing that prejudice was used a way to, you know, maneuvering racial fears has always been used to deflect attention from capitalistic oppression, and, and it was a way to deter blacks and whites from uniting. So, so the first way to bridge that gap between poor blacks and other poor was to wean whites mostly whites, over the centrality of capitalism as the source of their common oppression. So the first thing it did was to reach out to Appalachian whites by ways of talking to Christian socialists like Michael Harrington or uh, many people who were working with unions and white unions. And then he reached out to the Chicano movement, who was very active in the Southwest, trying to blend class-based and ethnic-based demands and grievances. And most interestingly, he reached out to the National Welfare Rights Association. And, and I'm sorry if I'm going too fast, but to me, that's one of the most interesting features of the Poor People's Campaign. He, he was trying to bridge that gap between 
blacks and non-blacks, but also to address the gender issues by reaching out to the National Welfare Rights Association, which was led by a working class, underemployed, underpaid African-American women. And he had to let go many of his patriarchal features to give them first seats. So what you have is a pan-ethnic, pan-racial, pan-class, pan-gender coalition because he wanted the poor to be represented through all its, its faces. And he didn't want one particular image of poverty to shadow, overshadow all the others. So, so long as the pool would be united, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or, or race, something could change. The system could be shaken and the pool could gain some form of leverage. So that was the plan. The plan was to reach out to the many stripes and the many faces of the American poor so that their, their voice could be heard. So one of the things that King, as you, you talk about in the book and others have written about as well, King was bitter about, and Du Bois was as well, two of the things were one is the joint ease with which white liberals and many members of the black middle class had with accepting advances for a few, you know, particularly for the black middle class, and not being outraged by the lack of progress for poor black people. How did that understanding that on King's part, that you really had to focus on the least well-off in the community and not just those who were somewhat well-off, affect his ideas about the tactics and strategy of the Poor People's Campaign? Well, first off, I guess he was being very careful with the kind of Talisman tenth kind of framework because he was he had been raised in in a social gospel environment where the notion of caring for the downtrodden, uh, caring for the dispossessed, were very present. He had a careful attention to the predicament of the lesser off, but then I think his personal experience. Because he was challenged in, in many of his assumptions in, in Chicago, I have to say, Chicago played a fantastic role in changing his minds on many, many topic and subject matters. I talked about gender, I talked about class and, and ghetto life, everything that he came to being familiar with in Chicago. So as far as strategy, there is this very tragic to some degree this connection between Bayard Rustin and Dr. King in 65, 66, and 67. I'm not saying that Bayard Rustin was the epitome of the black middle class. He had remained, he, he remained social democrats to, to the core, but when he published the piece uh, from protest to politics, basically claiming that it was now time to recenter and to trust the Democratic Party and to, to entrust the, the party and, and electoral uh, mainstream politics with the ability to enact social change, he was channeling the idea of many upper class and middle class blacks that now the time of 
mass disruption was over. Now had come the time of respectability politics, uh, would be the word used later on. But now was the time for doing politics as grown up. That was pretty much the new, uh, the new motto. And King refused that. And uh, as evident by the Poor People's Campaign, which was uh, framed and laid out as a massive disruption of the federal government. So whereas Randolph or the NWACP or people like Jesse Jackson would say, wait a second, now we're going to do black capitalism, we're going to do respectable politics, we're going to play by the rule, we're going to integrate into traditional politics, King would say, well, actually, no, it's not working. So once again, it was much more Fred Hampton than Jesse Jackson when he launched the Poor People's Campaign, which was envisioned as a massive exercise of civil disobedience. It was not only that the poor would settle in in an encampment on the Washington Mall, but delegations of disruptors would stop the daily work of federal agency and and, and try to uh, stop the system, to disrupt the system, to get some response as far as economic inequality and racial injustice. So no respectable politics for King up until the end. So one of the things, talking to some of my older relatives who were involved in Chicago Democratic Party politics at the time, and also just talking to some of the black radicals from the time, I think Chicago also instilled four lessons for King that he saw were negative, but really as you suggest, profoundly affected his thinking. One was, I think he was absolutely stunned by the hatred he found in northern white communities toward black movements and black people. Secondly, I think you talked about his working with the gangs. The gangs also provided some protection in the marches that he led in Chicago, of course. And so I think that's part of where you saw start reflecting the, the revolutionary potential of young black people and young black people from poor communities. The third thing, and you know, this is a lesson that SNCC learned in the South and at the Democratic in 64, but I think in Chicago it was reinforced for King, was the you know the bankruptcy of the Democratic Party, to be frank. But the Democratic Party was more than willing to sell out, not just sell out black people, but actively uh, uh, suppress black movements. And so you talk about you had to work for everybody. I think one of the questions King started asking that some of his colleagues in the leadership of the civil rights movement had a different answer for working for whom. And his answer was, if it wasn't working for everybody, then it wasn't working. And that was the foundation of neoliberalism. And to some degree, of people like Kienga, uh, Amata Taylor have talked about, can be found in exactly in this period, not only in the policies of the Republican Party, but also a shift in segments of Black political class and Black middle classes toward a more, what would become a more neoliberal understanding of Black politics. Yeah, 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 I, I absolutely agree. And and what's interesting is that King also, in the footstep of Du Bois, believed that Black militants could spearhead a form of class-conscious insurgency and that they could wean the white workers 
to the cause of wealth redistribution as uh, insofar as once the poor white would understand that it was being that it was a, a collateral casualty of emerging neoliberal policy that could be a, a very powerful coalition against the power that be what were some of the concrete policy positions that were advanced by the poor people's campaign we think of we think you know particularly today with some of the movements we see don't have necessarily formal lists of demands but the poor people coalition operated in a, during a different period what were they focused on primarily in terms of trying to, to bring about policy change i guess the most defining feature of the poor people's campaign was that it took place amidst great turmoil. We mentioned it before, but the country and and so many American cities were combusted by the rage and the frustration of young African-Americans who were locked out of all the riches of the country and locked in enclaves of poverty, police brutality, and disenfranchisement. So uh, the first thing the Poor People's Campaign uh, wanted to tackle was poverty in inner cities and and mostly the, the question of housing. So the campaign demanded a massive plan of construction of low-income housing, a vast plan on five years. It also demanded a massive program of job creation, of minimum guaranteed income, and the fact that poor people, mostly in urban areas, would benefit from affordable health care decent housing and good public education. So these sounds like, you know, basic social democratic demands, but they were nothing short of revolutionary when King framed them in uh, 1968. And there's something particularly revolutionary, but nevertheless very American in the sense that it was anchored in American radical tradition. He called specifically for something which he laid out in 1964, and which was a declaration of economic rights for the dispossessed. And this idea of constitutionalizing anti-poverty effort speaks to his profound understanding of the state as an avenue for redistributing opportunities and wealth. And once again, it's a a classical social democratic kind of thought to to be willing to have this kind of economic bill of rights for the disadvantage. Obviously, it stems from the New Deal era, and obviously it was a way to put a premium on economic disparity and to demand that the government pay attention to the dispossessed and to the severing effect of economic inequality on the social fabric of the nation. So to answer your question, I would say that housing, job creation, the declaration of economic rights for the dispossessed, and health and education were the key demands. But once again, we don't want to forget that all these class-based demands were articulated along with ethnic and race-based demands. Once again, it was not 
either a redistribution or recognition, as Nancy Fraser had it. It was both. So it was all these class-based economic demands with articulated or organized, tangled with the recognition of the special grievances of Chicanos, Native Americans, Black mothers from Chicago, and obviously African Americans who deserved some particular policies to redress and to remedy the long history of exploitation and racial injustice. One of the, I think, one of the things that is so explicitly shown in your book is the genius that King had for grounding his demands and, and, and calls in both the Black radical tradition and the sort of American liberal radical tradition as well, the uh, white American radical tradition, particularly the New Deal. There's a, I'm going to quote from a long passage from a book where you quote him from Why We Can't Wait. And you say, as early as 1963, King explicitly defended a form of reparation for slavery, quote, and this is King now, no amount of gold could provide an adequate compensation for the exploitation and humiliation of the Negro in America down through the centuries. Not all the wealth of this affluent society could meet the bill, yet a price can be placed on unpaid wages. The ancient common law has always provided a remedy for the appropriation of the labor of one human being by another. This law should be made to apply for American Negroes. The payment should be in the form of a master program by the government of special compensatory measures which could be regarded as a settlement in accordance with the accepted practice of common law. Such measures would be certainly be less expensive than any computation based on two centuries of unpaid wages and accumulated interest. I am proposing, therefore, that we, just as we granted the AGI Bill rights of rights to war veterans, America launched a broad-based and gigantic Bill of Rights for the disadvantaged, our veterans of, being, of the long siege of denial, unquote. I think today most people would be shocked to know that the late king, let alone the early king, supported a call for reparations. But what's interesting about this call for reparations is that it combines the black radical tradition with contemporary liberal, contemporary to his time, liberal traditions, as well as with universal policies. That was something that was new, the ability to bring all those things together. Well, it was perhaps new in 67 because it had been lost. But the radical tradition, if you, coming from Du Bois, but mostly in the 1930s in socialist and communist circles, these radicals, they blended, they intertwined race and class oppressions. And to someone like Du Bois, you cannot tackle racial inequality if you don't take first into account the black American is, is, is first and foremost a worker. And it's because he has the, you know, both hats of being a black subordinated individual and a worker exploited by virtue of his class, that if you don't take these two elements together, you cannot tackle inequality and racial injustice. So it had been that these two issues were addressed in the same stroke, but it was definitely lost. And, and today, when I hear people talking about 
either identity politics or it's either class or race or do you pander too much to African-Americans? What about the white working class? I'm being nostalgic of this time not long ago where people were able to frame these two questions and King was not, let us be honest, more intelligent or more educated or more, I don't know, clairvoyant, perhaps a bit more clairvoyant, but he was an average, intelligent, educated man. And he was able to think twice, to challenge his own assumption as far as black power, as far as gender-based inequality, as far as class versus race to frame this poor people's campaign, which was an insurgency of the poor, which addressed, at the same time, race-based oppression and class-based oppression, and who was willing to have poor whites join the movement against, you know, capitalism, the wealthy, those who benefit, because perhaps something he had that most people have lost was his good knowledge of Marxian philosophy and Marxian history. I'm not saying Marxist, I'm saying Marxian. That is, he has read the young Marx. When, when in 1962, Dr. King wrote to Coretta, so 62, he was in his 20s, right? We're not talking of a radicalized late King. He was in his 20s and he wrote to Coretta, quote unquote, that Capitalism has outlived its usefulness because it took necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the few, which is basically the definition of exploitation. He understood that capitalism was predicated of upon the exploitation of the few by another few and that the benefits and the prosperity of some was predicated on the misery of others. And therefore, by framing a Marxian dialectic, which was not radical as far as nationalist, but which was universal and race-based at the same time, he managed to have this revolutionary approach to tackling wealth inequality. I mean, one of the reasons that thread was lost, as, as I've written in my last book, was due to a couple of different tendencies. And King was able to bring them back. To, I mean, I'll talk a second about why King is slightly different in my mind than, let's say, some of the black radicals of the 1920s and 1930s. But two of the reasons that that strand was lost within black popular politics was, of course, one was the anti-communist movement, the McCarthy movement, the Red Scare of the 1940s and 1950s, where it was brutally suppressed, often with the support of some social democratic elements within the United States. But the second reason also was that the Communist Party, which is where a lot of this activity occurred within the 1930s, was never comfortable with a race-based approach to thinking about economic and racial inequality. And by the 1950s and early 1960s, was very skeptical of racially-based movements. Where I think King is different than the previous generation of radicals who could who link race and class was that he was able to put it in, in a language that sounded familiar to a broad liberal audience in and outside of the black community. While at the same time, also not only talking about reparations, but also talking about internal colonies and using type of rhetoric that organizations and, and activists who are considered far more radical also used. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. 
it was able to couch is Poor People's Campaign both within the language of white liberalism. And when I, I mentioned the Economic Bill of Rights for the Dispossessed, sure enough, it was a radical idea, but it rang some bells in the minds of white liberals, while at the same time when he was talking about the about exploitation, for instance, which is a very connoted Marxist term, he was reaching out to young black radicals. But there's also, I think, another reason why so many black and white as well radicals lost the memory of these straddling between race and class was the resistance and the resilience of white prejudice. I mean, let us be honest, in the history of the American Labor Union, or even today, the history of the working class is the history of a successful strategy aimed at separating and splitting the workers along racial lines. And and white prejudice is a very efficient tool. And when King reached out to poor Appalachians, I would say it was a major leap of faith because he knew he had worked with labor unions for so long. He knew and he wrote and he publicly talked about the prejudice a white worker and the fact that the, the white worker had to let go of his racial bigotry and prejudice to make change happen. So I think I understand a part of the black radical tradition who lost hope and lost faith in the ability of the white working class to overcome racial prejudice, although this very prejudice had been infused and instilled in the white working class by the ruling class. It harks back to the 17th century. So it's a long and uh, very powerful strategy, which even today remains very hard to tackle and to uproot. One of my last questions is that King wanted to achieve a democratic welfare state on a scale that we could see even to date to some degree in countries like Iceland and Finland, and even countries such as France have a far more general social service provision than, than in the U.S. But on one hand, we see leaders such as President Macron of France be the target of massive paralyzing demonstrations because following those such as Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan a generation ago, he's trying to dismantle the generous pension and social welfare provision provided by the French state. And on the other hand, we see young radical black activists in the U.S. share with other young activists around the world a profound distrust of the state, not only due in this country to the murder of black people by the state, but also due to the view that the state social welfare bureaucracy reinforces structures of economic and racial inequality. What relevance does King's vision have for us today on either side of the Atlantic? Well, I guess his vision would teach us that as long as you trust the state, as long as you believe that the state is accountable, that the state will carry on the mission of alleviating the effect of uh, capitalism, market-based brutality and violence, you could protest, but at least you can demand something. The problem that we have here is that we've long had a tradition in France of trusting the state because in a social democracy, the citizen is very active in defining the social policies which he think is, thinks is best. 
So the pension retirement program is an example of the long history of negotiation and, and citizen participation in the framing of the public policies. And now you have this young generation of neoliberal technocrats, and Macron is an epitome of that, who wants you, the individual, to be accountable for your ability to save for your retirement plan. So you as an individual, you have to be accountable. But at the same time, the state cannot be accountable anymore because all that matters is efficiency. All that matters is cutting costs. All that matters is international competition. And this kind of neoliberal talk happen in a country that is so disappointed with what used to be a reliable welfare state. So I guess to come full circle, Dr. King wanted to have an accountable welfare state, not only accountable as far as the 14th, 15th, and 13th Amendment, obviously, but also accountable as far as providing the citizen with the decent freedom, the freedoms that Roosevelt talked about, freedom from want, freedom from fear, freedom from hunger. And so as long as the government is not accountable, you cannot trust it. So to rebuild the trust, and that's what I'm hearing from Ferguson, as long as you cannot rebuild the trust, there's no social democracy possible. So the question now is, what do you want first? Do you want to rebuild the trust or first to have a social democratic state? But that's another story. Yep, and I think that's part of the lessons of the Poor People Campaign and of the movements of the 60s and 70s more generally. If you're going to hold the state accountable, you can't just rely on voting. You have to have a mass movement willing to disrupt in the way that King won to dis disrupt the federal government uh, in his vision of the Poor People Campaign. And then, just as the Social Democrats of the, early of the late 19th and early 20th century did, and mid-20th century did in, did in Europe, that if you're going to actually hold the state accountable, and I think young activists haven't seen this happen, they've seen a neoliberal, non-accountable state for most of their lives, you really have to build a movement. You can't just rely on traditional party politics. You can't rely on the state to do what's right if you're not actually wielding political power in a mass way. Absolutely. Uh, civil disobedience and insurgencies are the best homage that you could pay to healthy democracy. Absolutely right. This was a massive effort on your part. What are you working on? What's next for your... Well, I'm getting back at my first trade, which were whiteness studies. As you know, American socialists and Marxists uh, developed whiteness studies in the 90s, and that has been my point of entry into African-American history, ironically enough. So my next book is going to be on the notion of aggrieved whiteness. And how is it that now more and more white Americans uh, pretend that they are being discriminated against and that they are victims and that they want White History Month and all that jazz? I think that's particularly interesting. So I want to roll back the story and try to you know, tease out how since Reconstruction, American whites frame themselves and fashion themselves as victims losing out to African-Americans, immigrants, Latino, you name them. I think that's something that's worth unraveling. When I was studying Reconstruction several years ago, I was just shocked to read the accounts of taxpayer leagues and other white citizen organizations in the South use exactly the same language of racial resentment 
and aggrievement and resentment of the state that Ronald Reagan and now Donald Trump and his allies use. It's, that's a long history you're writing. <laughs> it's reminiscent of so many things. You know, it's even like for reparations. You know, if, you, if you think about the fact that in the aftermath of the loss, losing the Civil War, uh, planners asked for reparation for their loss, their loss being the abolition of slavery. I mean, it, it's more than ironic, I suppose. But it's also a material fact because, I mean, David Cameron's family, the former prime minister of the United yeah, Kingdom, yeah. his family did receive reformations from when slaves were freed in Jamaica because they were a slave-owning family. See, that's, that's equity. <laughs> that's equity. I like that. That's justice. Oh, goodness. Well, we look forward to your continued work, and thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Race Capitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.